episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's presentation. Happiness isn't brain surgery. What is differential diagnosis? So over the next few minutes, we're going to define diagnosis and really talk about how diagnosis is more of an art than it really is a science. We'll identify the reasons for diagnosis that a lot of us are already familiar with, but we're going to go over those again because diagnosis and effective diagnosis is really important. And we'll also discuss the drawbacks to diagnosis, such as personification, uh, symptoms being common in multiple disorders, and people falling through the cracks when they don't fit a particular diagnosis. So remembering that diagnosis is shorthand for a cluster of symptoms. When we talk about being sick, maybe you have the flu. If you tell somebody you have the flu, they think fever, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and headache. You know, that's the flu. When you tell people that you have depression, they get the idea, lack of pleasure, sleep disturbances, eating disturbances, difficulty concentrating, and hopelessness and helplessness. But not everybody who gets the flu has all of those symptoms, and not everybody who gets depression has all of those symptoms. Likewise, uh, there are a lot of things that can cause fevers, not just the flu. There are a lot of things that cause nausea, not just the flu. There are a lot of things that can cause the symptoms of depression, not just a neurochemical imbalance that we call depression. So we really want to look at what is causing these symptoms and not get too hung up on the uh, a diagnosis, because a lot of times I hear people um, talking about, well, this person has such and such diagnosis, so this is how we need to treat it. Well, let's look and see what their symptoms are before we start figuring out how to treat it. Um, a lot of times when you go to the books that are the treatment planners, they start addressing the whole concept of depression or of anxiety or of addiction instead of really honing down in on what the person's specific symptoms are and what might also be causing or contributing to these symptoms. So we know that diagnosis is necessary for insurance reimbursement. And I don't want to eliminate that or I don't want to minimize that. However, it is really important that we use ethical diagnosis when we're going into um, reimburse, insurance reimbursement and insurance paperwork. Too often people are like, well, just find some kind of diagnosis so I can get um, so I don't have to pay for this and you can get reimbursed. That's not okay. Um, if somebody presents, not that it happens very often, but if somebody presents with singular addiction, no co-occurring, you can't bill for depression or anxiety. If it's not there, it's just not there. However, we really have to look at what clinically significant means to the client and whether they're fitting into um, the diagnostic criteria based on their presentation. What a clinically significant pre presentation of depression for one patient may be may be very different than for another. Just like in addictions, when we talk about hitting bottom, you know, that's not a clinical diagnosis, obviously, but bottom is different for different people. So when we're diagnosing, the DSM still has that phrase in there. It has to cause clinically significant distress in one or more areas of functioning. Uh, we want to look at what are the symptoms and what can best be, 
encompass this in order to, A, be able to provide services for the client? Because, yeah, I mean, we don't want to turn somebody away who's presented for treatment because they think they need treatment. Obviously, I want to make sure that they're getting services. Um, But by the same token, we can't lie and we can't fudge, which, um, you know, you can look at adjustment disorder, uh, but a lot of times many insurance carriers won't reimburse for that. Anyhow, diagnosis makes it easier for providers to communicate, but again, we get lazy. Instead of saying, what specific symptoms of depression does Jim Bob have? We say, okay, he's got depression, bring him on in. Um, Now, if you treat depression, you're probably going to treat any of the symptoms that are presenting uh, with a depressive diagnosis, so that's fine. But we also want to be aware that there's, like I said, it's an art. And when I was working in the the, uh, residential treatment facilities, we would pull charts on clients, and some of our clients were long-term clients. And their charts, we had multiple volumes on them, and it didn't seem like we could get the same diagnosis between any two presentations. And it wasn't just that we would switch between alcohol dependence and cocaine dependence. It was... One time it would be bipolar, another time it would be anxiety, another time yet it would be ADHD. And you're like, okay, there's some overlap in the symptoms, but which one is actually going on? And what symptoms are common to all three that we can look at and talk with the client and go, this is what we really need to look at. So it gives us a starting point for understanding, but not a long-term point. And I emphasize this to clients because I don't want them to say, well, I'm a depressive. No, you're a person. You happen to have depression. When we talk about depression, it just gives us kind of a shorthand for talking about your symptoms and making sure that we can get you the best services. Um, It gives us a starting point for understanding what may, may be causing your symptoms. A variety of different things can cause someone to feel depressed and not find pleasure in most things. And When I'm working with clients, especially in the initial couple of sessions, because a good assessment takes more than one meeting. So over the course of two or three meetings, we talk about different symptoms, where they came from, when they started, what makes them better, what makes them worse, and we start kind of trying to rule out or rule in whether there's a neurochemical imbalance, a nutritional deficit, if they're just exhausted. Um, illness such as chronic fatigue, chronic pain, keeping them from sleeping, or thyroid or hormone imbalances. Uh, I generally, well, not generally, I always refer my clients out. um, I want to make sure they've had a physical within the last six months that included a blood panel because I want to know that their thyroid and their hormones are kind of all in line with where they should be. And then we can go from there. Let's rule out any physical issues that, you know, I can't treat, but I know there are certain physiological causes of depression, anxiety, ADD-type symptoms, etc. Drawbacks to diagnosis. And this is my biggest problem ethically with diagnosis. And, you know, I go back and forth between how much autonomy do I want to provide the client, and I usually go towards the far end of providing autonomy, and I'll pull out the DSM or I'll pull out a sheet that has the diagnostic criteria, and we talk about it. Is the, Does this fit you or not? Does this criteria fit you or not? And we can dis- discuss how those things might be contributing 
and sort of feeding in on each other to create the emotional presentation, which is why they're in our office. Um, I remind them when they have the flu, they don't say, I am the flu. You say, I have the flu. It's, the flu is something you can get rid of. When somebody has cancer, they don't say, I am cancer. They say, I have cancer. Ideally, you want to get rid of cancer or at least get it into remission. Uh, something you are is part of you and more enduring, which is one of the reasons I personally, and there's a lot of um, discussion about this, and I can see both sides of the camp, but I personally try to discourage people from saying, I am an addict. Because if you are an addict, that means that recovery means getting rid of part of you, as opposed to getting rid of symptoms, getting rid of behaviors. It's getting rid of part of who you are. It's semantics. It's like the difference between saying you are a bad boy versus that was a bad decision. But the semantics do make a big difference when we're talking about recovery. I've had a lot of clients go through treatment, and ultimately, one of the hang-ups came down to, well, if I'm not an addict anymore, what am I? I? I don't know how to be a sober person. I don't know what that is. That's not part of who I am. I've always been an addict. I come from a family of addicts. I know how to be an addict. And so we need to talk about behaviors versus people and kind of separate separate the behavior from the person. When you've identified as being depressed or an addict for a period of time, it becomes part of you, like being a student or being a mother. It's a role you take on. So letting go of that role involves adjusting to a new self and grieving the loss of part of you. We gloss over this. If someone says that they've got chronic pain and they've had chronic pain or if they're a pain patient um, or if they say they're an addict, it's something that's part of you, and if you have to let it go, sometimes, well, generally, there's a grieving process. It may last 30 seconds, or more likely, it's a process that you've got to go through that may take a couple of days to kind of wrap your head around. If I'm not an addict anymore, what am I? You know, if I'm an addict, people know what to expect, to me, expect of me, and theoretically, the bar's set pretty low, so I'm safe. If I'm not an addict anymore... There's a lot of pressure. The same thing goes for someone who's had depression for a long, long time. If they say, I'm not depressed anymore, then there's, there's a lot of pressure. It's like, okay, well, you should have energy. You should be more optimistic. You should be a lot more fun to be around. There's a lot of shoulds, which can be daunting for people. They know what to expect out of their current behaviors, even if it's not the happiest place in the world. It's known. It's not something that they've got to live up to. So symptoms that are common in multiple disorders, physical and mental, sleep disturbances. Let's think about things that cause sleep disturbances. Um, amphetamines, any kind of upper medication, and that can include um, uh, caffeine. But it can also obviously include cocaine, methamphetamine, those sorts of things. Uh, hyperthyroid can mess up sleep. Hypothyroid can make people sleepier. Disruptions in hormone balances, estrogen, testosterone, cortisol, can also affect sleep ability. Disruptions in serotonin levels will also affect sleep ability. So we need to figure out where is this sleep disturbance coming from? 
when we talk about symptoms, which is, again, why I look over the course of two or three meetings, which is generally two or three weeks, we identify the most salient symptoms. And I say, okay, I want you to keep track of what makes these particular symptoms better or worse. Let's not look at the big overarching diagnosis of depression or anxiety. Let's look at these particular symptoms and talk about what makes them better or worse. Sometimes people will identify they've ultimately that they've got food allergies, hormone imbalances, um, that they are doing something that is sort of sabotaging them. So it's important to look at the details. Eating disturbances. Why are you eating? If you're eating um, because your blood sugar is all over the place, well, let's get an evaluation, make sure there's nothing wrong, um, diabetes, anything else going on there. Likely not. Most people will go to emotional eating, will go to kind of comfort eating after a stressful day. That's not necessarily an eating disorder. We do want to look at what might be causing eating disturbances, weird cravings, um, eating weird foods. A lot of times there's a physiological reason underlying it, but let's figure out what's going on because we know that poor nutrition is going to undermine any attempts to regulate our neurochemicals. Difficulty concentrating. Well, let's talk about that. Lack of sleep, not having the right neurotransmitters because of um, nutritional imbalances, having a lot on your mind. Um, Some people just don't concentrate well at certain times of the day. If they're tired or it's just not, if it's during one of those periods where they're in a lull, our cortisol ebbs and throws ebbs and flows throughout the day. So some of us have lulls, and most of the time it's around like 9, 10 a.m., and then again around like 2 p.m., but not for everybody. For me, for example, my energy is really, really, really good until about 11, 11.30. And then unless I have something to do, my energy starts to drop off rapidly. So it's important for me to get stuff done that I need to focus on, that I need really good concentration. Get that done early in the morning because I'm what you would call a morning person. What things can cause racing thoughts? Well, anxiety can, sure. Um, Amphetamines can, sure. Any kind of stimulant may cause racing thoughts. Being in an environment where one doesn't feel safe can cause a lot of racing thoughts. Being in an environment where someone is overstimulated can cause racing thoughts. And people who are gifted, and and this is, um, I I watched a great video on it um, a couple years ago on giftedness. And people who are gifted, their mind often works a lot faster than ours. And I can see it in my son. My son's gifted. And bless his little heart, when he starts thinking, and he gets onto something, he cannot sit still. And he's always been that way. You know, it's not that he's doing things that are disruptive. He just has to pace around in a circle. And the doctor that presented the uh, symposium that I I was watching was saying that their body has to keep up with the pace of their mind. So people who have racing thoughts, it may not be all that dysfunctional. They just may operate faster than the rest of us. And so they feel like it's out of place. They feel like it's abnormal. Other people can't keep up. So it does start causing problems in their relationships. Fatigue. There's so many things that cause fatigue. Maybe you had a couple extra hard workouts in a row. Maybe you're getting sick. 
sick. I know right before I get sick, I feel like I've been hit by a truck. I'm just like, oh, I have no energy to do anything. And then two or three days later, sure enough, I usually get sick. My children, before they get sick, and this can go back to difficulty concentrating, they get very disorganized. I mean, it's like I wonder sort of where their head is um, because they can't remember things. They make silly mistakes. Their attention to detail goes way down. And sure enough, usually when that happens, at least prior to adolescence, when that happened, they would get sick. Now that they're adolescents and they've got hormones all over the place, I've just kind of thrown up the white flag and given up on trying to get them to concentrate for very long on anything um, until they get their hormones under control. So hormones are another thing. If you're working with younger people or even older people, as hormones change, um, it can cause changes in sleep, eating, concentrating. We know a lot of um, older people don't sleep very much. And my grandma, she gets up at four in the morning now. It's the older she gets, the earlier she gets up. And, you know, she goes to bed at 8, 30, 9 o'clock, but she's up at four in the morning. When I was younger, she didn't get up to like six. So her clocks kind of moved back and she actually doesn't seem to need as much sleep anymore. So we want to consider within the realm of normality. And I always try to look at normal reasons for these symptoms. Now, if they're causing clinically significant distress, then we need to figure out how to deal with it. But sometimes there are very normal, very practical reasons that people are having these problems. Um, eating disturbances. Here's another one, and I know I'm kind of all over the place on this slide today. But people who go on really restrictive diets may find themselves binging more, may find themselves with weirder cravings um, because their body's trying to get what it needs to function. Uh, likewise, there may be an emotional, psychological connection with certain foods that they end up craving if they completely restrict it. So the bottom line, have your clients identify what symptoms they're having, not this big disorder, not global thing, but specifically, what does this issue look like for them? What are their symptoms? And then over the first two to three weeks, have them track what, their, what makes their symptoms worse, what makes their symptoms better, and see if you can get a handle on what's going on, in addition to referring them out and make sure that they get a clean bill of physical health. People fall through the cracks. We know that prevention is far more effective and efficient than treatment. But people often don't seek help until they nicely fit a diagnosis. So they'll go on WebMD or they'll go on some other site and they'll go, well, I've only got like three of those symptoms, so I guess I'm not really depressed. Or I haven't had, when they say most days every day, I don't know if I qualify for that or not. And they delay getting treatment. Part of that is an excuse to delay getting treatment because treatment is kind of scary for some people. Uh, so we want to destigmatize, demystify the process, and help people see that it's not really that different than going to see your, your regular physician. Now, a lot of people don't like going to see them either, but that's a whole different ballgame. We want to make sure that people identify the symptoms that are causing them problem. If they're having distress in their life, I want them to come see me. Even if they don't fit nicely into a diagnosis, if we can address it when there's only two or three symptoms, we're going to see gains and we're probably going to have a lot more success a lot quicker 
than if we wait until they've got five out of seven symptoms and they can barely function. If they don't nicely fit a diagnosis, sometimes insurance won't reimburse. And that's a chance that we take. Um, as a clinician, it's up to you to decide whether you are only going to see people who nicely fit into a reimbursement category um, and how far clinically significant distress, um, how much of that you can, at what point you consider it clinically significant distress. And again, in my mind, if the client is coming to my office, they're experiencing clinically significant distress. But in the event that you end up with somebody in your office and there's just no way to get a diagnosis, do you have a method for sliding scale, for uh, payment plans, for something to treat what wouldn't qualify as something that their insurance would uh, pay for? One way that some clinicians do it and some treatment centers do it is to offer uh, group therapy. If someone is presenting, they don't quite fit, maybe they're stressed, um, having group stress management groups, each person in the group pays 10 or $15. Ten people in the group, you're still making a decent hourly rate, and, uh, you know, you don't have to worry as much if insurance is not going to reimburse. Problems in relationships, mood, etc. will continue to get worse, which will make the mood disorder or addiction worse if people don't nip it in the bud. What's even worse is when we've got a client who's in recovery from addiction or from major depress depressive episode, and they start to feel it coming back on, but it's not that bad yet. And my response to them is, as soon as you start to see an inkling that it's coming back, just like when you have a cold, as soon as you start to have a sniffle, you start making changes and maybe taking more vitamin C or getting more rest or drinking more fluids. The same thing needs to happen with your mental health. We need to nip it in the bud if we want to be as effective as possible because you worked really hard to deal with the first round of depression or anxiety or addiction. I want you to be able to maintain those gains. So it's important for us to realize, and we're going to talk about this um, when we finish this presentation, it's important to realize that diagnosis really is a necessary evil um, when it comes to our side of it, when it comes to reimbursement. For clients, I really wish we didn't have to um, because too often they will identify something. Again, they'll go online and they'll go, well, WebMD says I'm bipolar too. That could be. But before you start embracing that and personifying that, let's take a look at whether, what other options might be out there. Um, I think, in my opinion, clients can actually make themselves worse when they go on and they start looking at the diagnostic criteria just kind of willy-nilly because they're like, oh, well, yeah, you know, I do have, I do have some guilt about stuff. Well, yeah, everybody has guilt. Are we talking about abnormal amounts of guilt that is negatively impacting your life? And once I start putting that phrase in there with every symptom they bring up, they start to say, okay, I see how this is unpleasant. You know, guilt, grief, all that stuff sucks. And I see how it's unpleasant. However, it's also a normal reaction to unfortunate situations. 
Diagnosis provides a starting place for exploring a cluster of symptoms. If we're talking about sleep problems, you know, that's a pretty wide range. Does that mean you can't sleep? Does that mean you're going to sleep and then waking up six times in the night? Does that mean that you're having nightmares that are waking you up? Um, Does it mean you go to sleep and you wake up at 2 a.m. and you can't get back to sleep? Those are very, very different presentations and may be caused by very, very different things. Uh, The same thing with eating, the same thing with uh, mood. You know, if you have a depressed mood, if you feel like you can't find pleasure in anything most days, most of the time, yeah, that's something that we need to address. But there are probably 10 different things that could cause that. So let's take a look at what's going on in your life that may be causing it and how we can intervene. So it's part art and part science. Through the assessment process, I find that clients can find it very empowering as they go through and look at these symptoms because it normalizes what's going on as we talk about it. It normalizes what's going on for them, and then they can also see, start to see things, what makes it better, what makes it worse. Well, this was a really bad day, but this was kind of a okay day. And they start to see shades of gray, if you will, which oftentimes makes them curious. And they say, okay, why was today better than yesterday? Or why was yesterday better than today? It's important for you to remember that symptoms are your body's way of telling you something is wonky. You know, if you are having symptoms that are bothersome, then that probably means that some physical or psychological or social need is not being met. So we need to take a look at what's going on. Remember Maslow's hierarchy. Bottom line, are you getting your um, medical and physical needs met? Do you have good nutrition? Are you getting enough sleep? And do you have a certain element of physical safety? Do you have somewhere where you can, like, actually relax second level is actually safety is this a place do you have a place where you can feel physically safe but then are you emotionally safe in your own head or are you constantly berating yourself when people constantly berate themselves we know that this keeps the threat the fight-or-flight response going and keeps them hyper vigilant it keeps them all on deck for so long that eventually the body starts to turn it down and there starts to be a level of apathy. So when people are awful to themselves or have high levels of anxiety, both of those can cause depression in addition to just plain old lack of serotonin depression. So there's a lot of different things that we need to look at. You can help your care team and, you know, most of us work in a multidisciplinary care team. When I've worked with our um, psychiatrists that have been uh, on our team, most of them spend 5, 10, maybe 15 minutes with the client. Most of our clients are not empowered, are not self-confident enough to stand up to the psychiatrist to even say much of anything. They just say, yes, uh-huh, and look at the floor. So... As a clinician, uh, a lot of times I will write up, I'll talk to the client, and I'll say, okay, what makes it worse? What makes it better? What are your symptoms? Let's write all this down, and then you can either talk about it with your doc or your psychiatrist, or you can hand it to them. But this helps 
communicate so I'm not having the client come back the next week and I can say, well, did you tell them about this symptom and that symptom? And they're like, well, no, um, you know, he didn't really ask. Well, no, we're not going to go there. I want you to have all the information. And if you choose not to share it, that's one thing. But if you're afraid to share it, that's something else. So I want to empower clients to really communicate with the entire team. And I want to make sure that everybody on the team has the same information. If it seems like there's a uh, breakdown in communication, obviously the next step, which I don't do at first because I want to empower the client, but the next step would be to get a release of information so I could call the attending directly and talk about or at least tell that person what my concerns were and they'll take it. I've had some attendings that just sit there and go, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, thanks, click. And then I've had other attendings that get really excited and they'll start to brainstorm and everything else. So just depending on the doc, um, you're going to get different responses. But it is important to make sure the entire team, and if there's a case manager, make sure he or she is involved because he or she may have information that the medical doctor and you don't have. Um, but ultimately, we want to identify what makes the symptoms better, increase that, and reduce whatever it is that makes things worse. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe either in your podcast player or on YouTube. You can attend and participate in our live webinars with Dr. Snipes by subscribing at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. This episode has been brought to you in part by allceus.com, providing 24-7 multimedia continuing education and pre-certification training to counselors, therapists, and nurses since 2006. Use coupon code counselor toolbox to get a 20% discount off your order this month.